Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast on the New Books Network. I am Alok Prasanna Kumar. And today I am joined by Dr. Aditi Suri, who is a consultant at uh, the Indian Institute for Human Settlements. Uh, Aditi is the author of the book, one of the co-editors of the book, rather, Platformization and Informality, Pathways of Change, Alteration and Transformation. She has co-edited this with Ursula Hughes. A brief introduction about Aditi. Aditi is a sociologist with training from the Department of Sociology at the Delhi School of Economics. Her current research investigates the nature and conditions of work in the life of urban residents, bereft of state-sponsored work and social security. She is particularly focused on understanding how Silicon Valley tech companies at the forefront of creating the so-called geek economy, like platforms uh, of Uber and Ola cabs, impact Indian urban workers whose experiences do not rest easily with the northern discourses associated with the geek economy. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Aditi. Thank you so much for having me, Alok. Great. So, your book connect, collect, collects very fascinating collection of uh, essays on the topic of geek workers and informalization. And uh, it, for me, it was a particularly illuminating read uh, because it covers so many areas of not just academic interest, but something that we see happening in front of our eyes. Uh, I think if you're living in Bangalore like I do, you tend to use an Uber cab or an Ola cab on a fairly regular basis. You order from Swiggy or Zomato. You have Amazon deliver things to you. Uh, you end up using a range of uh, services offered by tech platforms. And most of these services are delivered by, uh, you know, uh, people who are working in a very precarious manner. I think that is perhaps the right word to use it, in a very precarious manner. And uh, I think the collection of essays in your book gives us a very good sense of what we are seeing and how to make sense of it. But to kick off this discussion, I want to talk about something which is a very interesting and a central thesis of your book, which is that the work is being informalized in a particular way in the so-called global south. Now, that's a term which, of course, a lot of people fight about, but let's just say either to developing countries. And that is influencing the way in which work is taking place in the either to industrialized economies. Uh, perhaps you can flesh out this central thesis and why it's so important to talk about this. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think one of the initial reasons for even bringing this book together was exactly what you said, right? There is a hesitation to use some of the words that we've been using over the last 
50 years in this contemporary moment. So um, the idea of informality, of informalization, the informal sector, the informal economy, this whole host of conceptual words that um, that have kind of taken off uh, have been criticized a lot, right? There are so many skeptics within the development sector that says informality means nothing. It can mean everything and nothing. Um, and similarly, in 2023, should we even be thinking about uh, the lives of people using this term? Um, and it seemed to me that this hesitation was coming internally, not only from like our own country or from the global south, but it was a hesitation I was seeing in the work that people were doing in the global north and south where they were studying the same thing. Right? So uh, in 2015, when I started to look at what Uber, what the impact of Uber was on the lives of working people, and I use Uber here to mean all tech companies that do this work, Uber gets um, the archetype uh, in, in our minds, but um, there was a lot of work coming out around precarity and vulnerability and casualization in the global north. Um, and there was a lot of work coming out in the global south about informality uh, and the formalization of the economy. And it seemed like there was this huge conceptual gap where actually we were talking about very similar things, but we were really unable to use the same words. And so the idea was to see what is the relationship of uh, of the global north and south when it comes to a world when we're all operating under the same kind of technology services, right? And um, to me, uh, because I come from a background in urban studies, because I've been at IHS now for eight and a half years, the intellectual life world of the organization has really had a big impact as to how uh, this this work and my perspective on the gig economy or the platform economy is also emerged, right? Um, and in in urban studies or in um, southern urban studies, which is a very specific kind of body of knowledge I draw from, the idea of the global north is a place where the majority holds vulnerability, right? And despite the, the contours of states and nation states, etc. Um, and this idea of vulnerability and precarity are something that is, is through everyone's work when you're looking at what the kind of work that people uh, are building. Right? And so uh, to me, it seemed that the um, this idea that there was a precarity that was being created by platform companies in the global north because now workers didn't have access to welfare, uh, they didn't have access to legal rights when it, in the employment relationship, uh, was at odds with what we understand here as a precarious life. And a precarious life in the global south usually does not come with any welfare, does not come with any legal cover. Um, yet at the same time, the the Uber driver in India or the Swiggy delivery person in India do have a particular vulnerability and precarity, right? Um, and it comes from being out of the policy dialogue for generations. It comes from having their households bear risk of the economy for generations. Uh, and coming down to the idea of what the, what the lived reality of bearing that risk is seemed to be the one thing that we can actually see a commonality in in the global south and north. So my work, you know, even outside the book, even my own doctoral work has really been what is this idea of risk that underlies a precarious life or a life lived under poverty? Uh, and what does it mean in terms of the experiences people can learn from as they have to start to bear more risk in, in the global north? Um, and that is really why even the, the you know the framing of the book is platformization or informality, uh, as the worker bears risk or bears less risk in some instances in, in the global south, 
what is the way that that structural change actually takes place in their lives? And is there a way for us to actually see that um, all over the world, it is not only the individual worker that's, whose life is contingent to capital or to big capital or to big tech, but even the state in itself now bears a contingent relationship to these companies and to this idea of uh, unending innovation and un unending growth. Um, and this, while it's commonsensical to many of us who live here, common sense understanding does not filter into policy, it does not filter into international debates and international regulation on platform governance, for example. Um, and this book was in an attempt to try and bring together many cases that spoke specifically to place, but also were able to understand the larger global discourse around this to try and fill this conceptual gap. And, and this is the interesting conceptual gap that I think uh, was very beautifully um, expressed. I think we were both in that meeting, if I remember correctly, uh, a labor organization uh, organizer basically in the context of gig work said, your Malik, which means uh, your uh, employer, is no longer a living, breathing human being. It's your phone. He like, dramatically lifted up his uh, phone, his smartphone. And uh, I think it's very interesting that this particular change is mediated by a set of technologies which weren't around maybe even one and a half decades ago. right? Um, and, and we're talking about the smartphone with its computing capabilities. We're talking about the... Um, a widespread presence of the internet. We are a cheap internet, right? And I think that is also one of the key elements of it. Um, and we are also talking about the availability of things like, you know, the GPS and maps and so on and so forth. All of this platformization has been made possible uh, because of some of these uh, technologies coming together at the same time. But this is where... Um, I suppose we need to dig a little deeper and I want to sort of ask you more about this specifically. Uh, for whose benefit was this really? Uh, we see that the workers are in a very precarious state and, and it, it's, it's is, is it because they see no option or is this, is this a better option than what they have? Uh, we see that the companies, I mean, maybe some of them are starting to turn a profit, but it's taken more than a decade and they've burned through a lot of capital. Um, and has the eventual user in some way benefited from this? And this this is something which I think, uh, you know, in the context of tech, we assume there is this techno-utopianism about this where any improvement in tech is a general good for everyone. How do we make sense of the role of tech in this process? No, I think that's a really, it's, that question, I guess, has been asked so many times in the last 10 years. But it's so essential to this, uh, the entire purpose and the, the lived experience for all of us that it it begs to be answered by everyone at every moment. And, you know, I think um, the, the just coming back to this idea of techno-utopianism and what it means to think about gig workers precarious, right? I think in the global south and definitely in India, platform work is associated with aspiration and flourishing. Right, you're not thinking about the platform worker as someone who's destitute or someone who's poor or someone who fits within the policy categories of the BPL worker or the BPL household. You're not thinking about their nutritional intake. You're not thinking about their access to education. You're not thinking about upgrading the settlements, even though all of those things still happen to be a concern in their lives. But when it comes to looking at the gig worker or the platform worker in India, you think about someone who has attained education, who has aspiration, who 
is able to move beyond the informal economy into something else. And I think that's where the the break in whose benefit uh, is it kind of really comes from. Uh, the example you took of the neighbor organizer who's talking about a precarious life. And he, so in, in the kind of policy discourse that work organizations are creating in India, they want to be seen as informal workers. They don't want to be seen as anything else, right? Because the categories of destitution and, and poverty are so well understood in the global south and in the policy imagination that actually I think we don't know what to do with black folk workers. We don't know how do we get them into the formula, how do we get them into the high earning formal economy that we all understand and that we as people sitting on this call occupy. And I think um, the idea uh, of what we do with them and how can we get technology to benefit really comes at this idea of how much are they able to earn and whether they're able to be aspirational people. Um, and so in that sense, um, the, the, the benefit to them will come from, you know, the marketing and being able to give that. And I think that's what platform companies themselves think that they're doing. Uh, you know, in a, in a separate piece of work, I've been looking also at how platform companies understand gender. Like, are they able to see that there's a difference between men's life and women's life? Not just commonsensically, but also in how their own labor markets function. And the, speaking to founders and CEOs, then it seems like this idea of merit is very, very important and key for them, right? This idea that there should be an affirmative action for a particular kind of worker, whether on their own labor market or in the labor market in general, really is that this it, it does not is not in their in their mental makeup. Um, so in that sense, they do think that they are doing something beneficial by providing work and providing job opportunities. Uh, but eventually, the standardization of the neighbor and the experiences and the language workers use when they come to consumers' houses benefits mostly just consumers, right? In the sense of the professionalization of the work uh, and the professionalization and the efficiencies of, of not having to deal with tacit uh, kinds of services really do, do come in the favor of, of consumers. Uh, but what I do think um, we end up talking less about when we think about the benefits uh, of platform work is the benefit that platform companies or the ability to for platforms to aggregate human bodies and human labor uh, really benefits the state. And I, I think we saw this quite clearly uh, in the pandemic um, where in the emergency responses you know, the state was able to reach out to companies saying, we you know, we'll have ownership over the time of five lakh people, get them to work in our benefit. Or you have the ownership of the financial infrastructure that means 20, 40 lakh people are using in the gig economy. So help us kind of uh, be the infrastructure linkage between the population we've never known before and the population that now we can act upon. And I think that benefit and the political economy of that relationship is something that's quite understudied. And in the book, I think you see it in the example of uh, Ludmila's work in Brazil. You see it on Art's work in on in the Gojek platform, um, and you definitely see it in larger kind of the in the larger politics of how technology companies in India have also been kind of offering their services to the state. Um, and I think so, so all of these parties, the benefit of this technology and utopianism works quite differently, but it barely and very rarely uh, worker-centric in that sense. Um, yeah. 
and, and because you mentioned something very important, two or three things, um, we'll try and pick them apart one by one. One is the aspirational quality of it. And uh, if you speak to, as you know, I have tended to once in a while, uh, a lot of uh, Uber drivers have were sort of uh, are polar drivers and basically everyone in the ride hailing business, let's say, um, they did genuinely think they were getting into an aspirational part of the economy, right? Uh, that you could earn whatever that figure was. In some cities it was 50,000 and some cities it was 1 lakh rupees a month. And they realized that you know, it kept falling, that, that, that uh, demand was, that promise was never met. Uh, but it hasn't fundamentally uh, changed their understanding of the work that they do. Because I think um, two things which come again and again in conversations that one has is the flexibility. I can choose when I want to work and I am essentially my own boss. And again, these you know, uh, there is a dichotomy I sense between their perception of it and what is actually happening in terms of the algorithmic management of the work which you know, comes from the tech aspect of it. I was I just sort of wanted your take on that one part of it. The second part of it, a very interesting point that you sort of made, how the pandemic forced us to sort of see the workers as such, especially the state. On the one hand, and this is what a lot of uh, platform workers also say, on the one hand, you call us essential workers. We are necessary for fulfilling these 10 things. But on the other hand, we continue to be precarious. How do these three, two things make sense? Because an essential worker at that time was a doctor, a police personnel, or you know somebody working in uh, some important infrastructural work, all of whom have what are typically understood as formal jobs. But we are also essential workers, as a platform league worker would say. So why is our position so precarious? So these two, I mean, in, in a sense of contradictory things, uh, in a, a paradoxical things, perhaps we can sort of Take apart a little bit. Absolutely, uh, I think I think the the first let's take the first kind of question you said, which is around platform work is seen as aspirational, and the people who started off doing this work really thought that they were able to step out of some you know what we call say popular economies or informal economies or the feudalistic ways in which the governance of those economies actually work, right? into a system which, because of technology or automation, seem to have this idea of fairness and merit, which also the founders seem to be trying to bring. Um, but the experience of being a commodified worker is the experience of being a commodified worker, whether you're on the platform or not, right? And so actually the challenge is, uh, of course, in seeing the precarity of work, like you're saying, and, and the fact that there's more flexibility, that the idea of self-employment has really kind of fallen apart. But also in that sense, seeing is, do we have a category of called platform worker, right? Are we able to see the lived experience of a swiggy delivery person whose labor is so commodified, the, the service is so commodified? With that, I'm a bioduce teacher who's also under their own precarious kind of employment relationships, but their labor is not commodified in the same way. Um, and so in that sense, I think there's a dissonance even in thinking about whether that category uh, has any value. Uh, but really coming back to this idea of aspiration, I think one thing that um, in India and globally now we've started to slowly acknowledge is the fact that the platform workforce is a highly educated workforce. And once you start to accept that and see it, you kind of understand that our entire development paradigm has kind of fallen on its head. Right? If you're, if you're at, um, beyond matriculation, you have a 12th standard uh, pass, you're 
possibly in an engineering college or unable to find any work, quality of education or the job mismatch, whatever it may be. Uh, where does that aspiration then come from? And the entire message, the political social contract that's been kind of constructed has been your responsibility to educate to educate your households um, and from that modernity and growth will trickle out into your into your into lives of people. And so I've been interviewing gig workers now for eight and a half years and the surprising answer to what you want to do after the platform or what is it that you really want in your life is again comes down to ownership of time and comes down to self-entrepreneurship out in the informal economy. I've met so many people who have bought car, multiple cars to to have fleets on some of these mobility services. And they said, so I get to live close to where I work. I get to spend time with my family. Um, and it's always come back to me, right, that um, this idea of aspiration also comes from this very North Atlantic imagination that you're going to find it in work. You're going to find it in your career. You're going to find it because you got educated. Workers in India find respect in their own communities, whether because they have a, religion, a position in the religious community, whether they're caste marker, whether they were to amass a certain amount of wealth and become some kind of uh, create financial dependencies within their own community, uh, and so they so this mismatch is also kind of ideologically in what we think that we've been kind of creating, and it's I guess we've we've all talked about this for many decades, and it's really come to it to the to the forefront now. Um, and I think in that sense, uh, I think what the pandemic did was involve for labor rights than leaving any, any campaign or work has for, for many decades, right? Because it made destitution vulnerable and vulnerability so, uh, clear. And I keep coming back to these words because I think in our political economy, poverty and destitution have such a clear fixed space and we're able to understand it clearly. Um, but this idea of what the aggregation of the aspirational worker kind of, to me, also has a different meaning. So if I think, uh, and I and I allow myself to think academically here, not really for the kind of policy world, but um, because the worker is so essential to even a commodified service, right? If you don't have the commodification of, I mean, you don't have those human bodies there, we're, we're not in a place of, Kind of having self-driving vehicles and drones do deliveries and kind of removes the human work altogether. Then I think for the global south, the platform we can actually redefine what the platform is. Right? Platforms are these technical objects that have these these core functionalities and these modular features. And I think the global south because we're free, we're going to restrict automation in a sense that the essential infrastructure of a commodified platform is the human body. Um, and I think even in the book, you kind of see examples where um, where that working relationships kind of prevent automation from taking place or the lack of institutions uh, in governance kind of force platforms to enter and 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 make these MBAs do the work of organizing the informal economy, which uh, tickles me to no end. Um, but I, I think in that sense, we really need to pull away just from talking about the precarious live experience of workers and actually see that they are the fundamental infrastructure that actually makes any of this work. Um, as much as I've heard about Mozovato and Swiggy trying to automate even their, their dark, dark stores and warehouses, there is something that always prevents that. And that logic is because the, the terms of automation aren't 
don't have nothing to do with the economic logic of people who are working here. Even in Indians are not building for automation in that sense. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 very interesting because um, I think this idea, one very fascinating idea that you have given us is the idea that this platform depends on certain number of human bodies. Because I was thinking about, you know, while while you were just thinking, I was thinking about it. You know, if we take a food delivery platform, there have been restaurants before there was a, let's say a Swiggy or a Zomato. People have delivered food, you know, mm-hmm. from the restaurants itself before there was a Swiggy or a Zomato. But a Swiggy or a Zomato cannot exist without the delivery person at the end of the day, right? Uh, because, you know, e- even with just restaurants, they can always just be recommendation bodies, but the platform, they become a platform only when they can provide that last mile service and that last mile service is so important and so fundamental for them. Uh, to come back to a slightly earlier point that you made in this uh, in the last few minutes, which is commodification of work. I think this helps us because this has been one of the conceptual confusions, if I want to call it that, uh, where I suppose where people are struggling is to when I mean, we have a clear understanding of poverty and deprivation in India, and that's very clear. But in the context of precarious workers, how do we say, and this is where conversations keep coming back again and again, uh, how do we draw the distinction exactly between what you just identified, uh, which is, say, a teacher who is offering lectures online on Baiju's, or those who are doing these small tasks. It could even be a coder who is writing small pieces of code uh, on a gig basis. Versus somebody who's out there on the streets, who is delivering food, delivering parcels, uh, drive there, driving, and so on and so forth. Uh, and you know, we use these terms legally to say one are platform workers, one are platform gig workers. But I think the ability to commodify the work and the way in which you can sort of direct every last thing about them to say you have to pick it up, you have to go here within the next five minutes, you have to pick it up in the next one minute. You have to take exactly this route and drop it off here in a particular way and you have, you're have you going to be rated by the end consumer in a particular way and that determines so much of... I think that is a very important point, this idea that this work can be uh, commodified. Uh, but to move the conversation along a little bit, it's a, to again pick up something earlier that you mentioned, which is the gender element of this. And uh, one thing that... Uh, Dom, I, I suppose... Uh, this is work that uh, my other co-host, Saryu, who's today with us in this podcast, uh, her work has sort of looked at the gender element of this. And the gender element of gig work generally tends to come in only from the point of view uh, of, say, those who are providing personal services, in some senses, massages, uh, beauty services, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I also, I think, uh, some, of, some of the essays in your book talk about that there is an opportunity here for say women drivers, women delivery personnel, that they're not able to access. And I think it ties a little bit into the last point that you sort of made about automation doesn't solve everything or automation cannot address all problems. So I thought we could deep dive a little bit uh, on the gender aspect of platform gig work. Uh, and what 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 does your work sort of talk about? What does it say? And what does your book set or say about this? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh... I, I think there are uh, some very compelling chapters in the book that have opened my eyes also to how the kind of gender question has been functioning at platform economy because it's such a vast question and every 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 new question the platform economy is like very large and very uh, difficult to kind of uh, have a simple answer to even in an abstract fashion. But I think um, I think the one the one thing that's really struck me. Um, 
is uh, again thinking about this aspirational worker, right? Um, so Umarani at the ILO has a chapter in this book where she very uh, painstakingly dissects how uh, very educated women in India are actually taking a platform work, right? And this is a cohort of women in India that we've always looked at as um, being able to join the workforce. Um, India has a notoriously low has notoriously low rates of female labor force participation. And at one end, you have women who don't have the option but to work, who have to work. And then you, at the very top, you have women who work because they can. And there's a very, very small percentage of women who do that. And there's a huge chunk missing in the middle whose um, lives are kind of uh, unaffected by or job opportunities in the informal economy as self-employed or as wage workers or elsewhere. Um, and so thinking about the last 40, 50 years where we have gotten women educated, we have gotten women into STEM education, we have gotten them into master's level of education, um, and they now sit at home and do data entry and data labeling work is a very sorry state of affairs, right? And this is not even thinking about living lives under algorithmic management or the kind of unfairness it comes with having uh, your labor commodified. I think just in itself, um, the aspiration of what are, uh, of this, uh, and, and, it, and I keep coming back to this, right, which is the idea of the social contract being broken by technology, uh, because at no end in the global north or south is it really being met. Um, and, and kind of like think about what it means on the lower end. Right? So these are the, the kind of educated women who are being able to understand that. Uh, and there are two chapters in this book that deal with women who are, say, in domestic work, who are at that, um, at the, in the labor market because they have to work because their their incomes are very central to their households. Um, and it seems there that, uh, actually, Alok, can I just pause one second? Sorry. Yes. So coming back to this idea of how gender works in the platform economy, I think, um, I think we we are coming back to kind of classical issues in women's work, right? Uh, the more and more I study gender, and the more I read people's work in that. So one is, of course, the educational mismatch I talked about with the high-skilled, highly educated women. The other is the women who have always kind of worked invisibly, whether they're domestic workers, care workers. Um, and the unfortunate, uh, the unfortunate part of the contemporary moment is that while uh, domestic workers, care workers, the men who are doing service work, uh, in that kind, are able to find fewer job opportunities here on platforms. Um, there is, uh, you know, like the the case of Ayush Rathi and Amrita Tandon really show us how the layers of intermediaries that have to uh, manage these women actually take away from any structural change that could they could be kind of facing, right? And it begs the question why. Uh, why, uh, why are they making an argument about women having so many intermediaries in their work? And is it not true for men? Um, and I think the challenge is, again, speaking to any founder or any creator of this technology, whether they also be in the design space, either they are confounding elements of women's lives that don't work for the labor market. Right? And this has been the case for like for, for eternity in that sense. So you can't automate, you can't design, you can't standardize the work of women because each household it, like challenges and shapes the work decisions of every woman. Um, and so the layers and layers of human managers that have to go and design interventions that have to go into actually scheduling women's work to verifying whether they're able to work, to rating their work, to understanding how they interact 
uh, in the households or in the spaces they work in uh, kind of really, really will stymie any kind of technological goodness that can come out of, say, taking all these actors and mission their lives. Um, and the other element of that is also uh, because a lot of creators of this technology also happen to be male or they happen to be women working in high skill and spaces. You haven't actually taken uh, the opportunity. You haven't actually taken technology to it to its real opportunity. Right? If, if the if the idea of platform work is that uh, you can delink time from the space of work where it has to take place, or delink time for the way services have to take place, there has been no uh, real um, any company or service that's been built on a time study using the work. Right? There's such a, a clear opportunity for something like that to happen. Um, but there's there's such a dis disconnect in in how these worlds take place that actually the opportunities kind of keep getting lost in that sense. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I think uh, that's a great point in terms of they haven't delivered on the promise, partly because they perhaps haven't understood the kind of issues. And I think the one uh, big thing which you also hinted at was the amount of unpaid work that women end up doing for their families. So, there was a recent uh, report by Azim Premji University on labor in India, and they had this fascinating graph. Maybe we can share that link in the uh, the show notes, which showed that you know, like you mentioned, for those who uh, have to work and have no choice, you find a large level of participation. And say for the well-off uh, women from the well-off sections who have a choice in the matter, you also see an increasing level of uh, labor force participation. But the middle perhaps explains those for whom uh, the need to perform unpaid labor at home is still the most pressing concern from the families and so on, which prevent them. It's not absolutely necessary for them to go out and work, but this demand to do this unpaid labor uh, at home keeps them from accessing, if even if they would like to do so. Uh, but, you know, there are also specific issues about, around the fact that uh, by and large, the platforming economy is in India's major cities. And these are not spaces designed for access to women. There are also issues of safety and there are as, uh, issues about security. And uh, perhaps that is also something which maybe a lot of the tech companies haven't really thought about or, or maybe think about it as an engineering problem rather than a social problem. Absolutely. And um, so, of course, we don't kind of assume that women are going to be able to move around in the city and do all different types of work. So, actually, in like in a, in a very broad analysis of the platform economy in India, you see women working where they were working before in platforms and just come in in those spaces. They haven't platformized their own work in that sense. They're just offered services that women were already working. Um, and this idea of like the urban planning and the spatialization of women's lives being kind of very unfair in Indian cities is absolutely true. But I also think we have a very, I think in India, we have a very strong understanding of the digital space being unsafe for women when it comes to women users. Um, we have countless examples of that. 
But actually, in the world of platform work, there's also just as much sexual violence that's being committed on platform workers, right? Um, and so I don't mean the domestic workers and care workers, but I was talking, I spent the last few months talking to lots of educators on tech platforms, who again, like I said, are a fairly aspirational mobile, who to do non-commodified part of the platform upon me. Um, and you hear teachers who are on, say, an academy, who have so much sexual violence in the comments uh, that the students leave on their videos that it makes them absolutely feel unsafe to show up for work the next day. And of course, they're not in the same classroom as them, uh, but they were. But a lot of them freelancing women uh, who are asked to get on video calls with their clients. There's um, a lot of threats being given if you're unable to, they want to pay you. And we're also kind of lost a little bit on what the precariousness of women is in the online workspace. Um, we have a strong understanding of what location-based workers feel. And this comes back to what you were saying earlier, right? Like, we really understand what it means for the swingy delivery person to get in a car accident, to have to deliver so quickly and what to do with that. But we're actually really lost, um, even in our policy imagination of, do these women actually need any support? If they're in the home and they haven't left the home, do they deserve anything when it, by way of social protection, social security, or, or any other kind of income security? Because... Um, again and again, this idea of women's work, whether it be in the platform or off the platform, comes down to being very tangential. Um, and again, even with the founders and kind of creators of these companies, who are who are creating platforms specifically for women or platforms who had women on them, they never assumed women were for were going to be full time workers. They they were like, you know, that's just not their aspiration. Why should we design for that? So even within that logic, there's never. We're coming back to classical debates, so do you let people just be what they want to be, or do you kind of use your, your space to transform and uh, to empower women? And I'm also saying we're doing very poorly announcing both of those questions, both from the state and from industry in itself. And uh, which, which sort of, I suppose, uh, also explains some of the issues that we have been seeing. And uh, uh, we are seeing, of course, the fact that uh, Urban Company, which is providing, uh, which is an NQH, provides these kind of personal services such as salons and massages and so on, their women workers have organized to protest against them. And we have seen certain waves of these protests and we have seen certain waves. But it's also interesting to me that even though it's platform work and you kind of meet, don't really meet a co-worker. I think one of the essays in the, in, in the book quite goes well into this idea as to how they even organize. Uh, because unlike, you know, the whole edifice of labor law is essentially built on the idea that workers will come and see each other and they can unionize and you know bargain collectively for everything else and be able to enforce their rights and so on uh, platform platform work in general takes away that possibility except in some extreme some some small uh, connections but how have workers been able to come together whether it is the women of urban company or whether it is, you know, uh, uh, taxi drivers and so on and so forth. How is this organization taking place? I think one of the, uh, one of the questions uh, about, you know, how difficult it is to organize and connect as platform workers because they don't have a workspace comes from that. But it also always has forced me to um, ask the question that we were not great at labor organizing before either as a, as a nation, right? Because the the factors of caste and community 
have also kind of prevented a lot of industrial action taking place outside the factory mode also. Um, but in those in those cases where the factory unit was not present and there were informal workers, unorganized workers in manufacturing that were trying to organize, their spatial unit became really key. Uh, and the, one of the benefits of being able to kind of study gig work from a place like IFJS or from this understanding of urban studies is to see the interlinkage of work and space and how specifically it operates in India. And I think the chapters in the in the book also, because they are uh, located in sites in the global south, which have been in sectors that have been informal and settlements that have been informal are also kind of uh, point to just how important it is where you live and who you live with for the outcomes of your labor identity or your collective action. Um, and so I think in India over the last few years, what we've seen is that cities themselves have been able to find pockets of organizing workers because there are common political economy factors that really shape that. Uh, you see this even in other people's work, like in Indonesia, Rodina Kadri's work which actually will show how collective action in space and in place actually has an impact on how companies are able to function. Um, and I think that's been a really uh, heartening uh, kind of thing to see. So, for example, some of the campaigns that the All India Gig Workers Union have been running are, are, are campaigns around rights in bustings. It has nothing to do with Uber, Ola and Swiggy. But because they've been able to collectivize residents of informal settlements uh, along the kind of issues they have on sanitation, water, uh, waste collection, they have been then able to use that collective identity to actually think about, now tell us about your work. You know, how do you think that we should be able to use our collective identity then? Um, and even uh, looking at some of the Earlier protests in India from workers themselves, right? In location-based work, when you have a protest, it tends to be uh, a set of workers who get together and are able to speak to a regional or local supply officer that comes from the company. Rarely do you have people going to headquarters. And the urban company example was really exciting for that because they were able to step into the headquarters. But place and space has a big improve work, right? And so we also see that coming up as a key problem in how even labor regulation is starting to play out in India. Right? So you have an example of the Rajasthan welfare board that's coming up. We also have different states who are thinking about welfare boards. And the terms of their thinking around the structure of their welfare board are so localized and so commonsensical to their local economy that it's going to create a very difficult position for thinking what a pan-India regulation and pan-India social protection. Um, and so I feel like in India, this idea of space and the political economy, what comes with operating in space, really challenges the idea of collective action, and it's also where it stems from. No, oh, that's great. And I think uh, uh, it's a good jumping off point for us to, I think, talk a little bit uh, about, um, or at least spend the next 15, 20 minutes, talk specifically about the trajectory of platform gig work in India. Uh, because uh, I feel, apart from the fact that we generally cover Indian topics, I feel what has been happening in India is kind of um, illustrative of not just India's problems, perhaps, uh, but also of the larger context in which uh, platform work is taking place uh, all around the world. And perhaps given the diversity of experiences in this country, it gives uh, more uh, context in that way. And uh, what I sort of uh, want to, I suppose, in some ways talk about is the fact that this issue was first approached from a law and order perspective. Uh, I suppose the existence 
Sure, it was known that these services exist and that there are people who drive and so on. But I think people started taking a closer look after you had this horrific incident of a sexual assault in Delhi, which took place in an Uber uh, car. And suddenly everyone was like, how, do, how, did, how did these people come and do this business in this country? I remember very clearly that uh, when the Delhi police started to investigate, they were like, okay, who is Uber? Okay, where is their headquarters in India? Nobody knows. Even the drivers don't know. And they're like, how is that possible? So the state as such is completely baffled by the existence of this uh, business model. And I think um, perhaps that led to that first reaction in terms of saying, oh, no, no, these things need to be licensed and regulated and so on. But the labor perspective comes much later, I think. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about at what point that the state start thinking about the welfare of the drivers and the gig workers and so on in a serious way. No, and I remember that uh, incident you're talking about and how the Delhi police had to find the headquarters of Uber were in a small hotel in Green Park. You were completely backward about what to do with that. Um, but I think even with that case, right, even with the rape case, the problem was the driver um, had uh, committed a crime right, in Delhi uh, and hence um, he came from a village in Haryana, UP, I'm forgetting. But the larger point that the, that, that kind of became evident then was that they were, from the perspective of Uber, was that they did have access to the police records of the person in, well, when the crime had been, the previous crime had been committed. So they kind of said that we can't take responsibility when there's no documentation in place about that one person. And that really started confounding a lot of things. And and after that case, actually, you had all these ecosystem players which came in to do the verification of the gig worker for these companies. And that became a huge business. And it became a really telling sign for me to say that on the labor side, all of these governance institutions are missing. So you're just going to continuously have the market stepping in to do that work uh, and to make it more efficient for the platform, either to take responsibility or defer responsibility onto someone else. And that really comes down to what the state has been thinking about the platform also, right? So um, I think in the initial days of Uber and Ola in, say, in the 2014s and 15s, uh, to say about 2017, there were a lot of proactive kind of relationship building activities between different state governments and these companies. There were lots of MOU signed for employment generation, for army veterans having access to work after they will finish serving to for SCST youths to have job opportunities. Uh, you had all these different kind of models of platform state relationships also coming into play. West Bengal at some point had bought cars from the Ola fleet and owned the cars to then give to disadvantaged youth at that time. So there was a very strong, there was there were, there were examples of very kind of proactive um, ways to use the platform. Um, and as the kind of ecosystem and business models have matured, we've had to see, like you said, like a different kind of um, understanding of this. And I think taxation and insurance, like as always, have been the key reasons uh, and uh, that this has kind of happened. And, and those are the real things that have prevented um, different kinds of products and services or social protection from taking place. But on the worker side, I think um, what we've seen is uh, you know, India has revamped labor laws in 2020, which we're still waiting to see how they'll shape up. But really take very clearly the vulnerabilities of different kinds of workers. And they have um, 
different categorization of what it is to be home-based worker and vulnerability, platform worker who vulnerability has to be kind of protected, informal worker, etc. Um, but nowhere is the idea of labor rights really coming up, right? And I think there's a there's a larger sea change in how that labor regulation has framed the idea of unemployment. And I have my own reading of that as a sociologist, but I look, I love to hear about that employment coming down to just a wage relationship versus uh, having this um, idea of employment coming from formal employment, which has a tripartite relationship with has all these different elements to it and long-term kind of service part of it kind of shows how the state is willing to think about workers in all sectors of the economy very differently. Right, so I don't think um, in India we have kind of responded to decades of calls from worker organizations like Seva saying all workers are workers. Stop holding formal employment as the bar for calling a worker a worker. And the offside of that is now that if everyone's a worker, <clears throat> what is the impetus to actually have all workers be part of a formal tripartite relationship? And so is it just enough to kind of build and design for their vulnerabilities rather than for their rights. Um, and so in that sense, I think what the platform has done is become the cause of vulnerability for platform workers, but also the bridge to minimize that vulnerability. So social protection now will be given to platform workers because they work on a platform. Either they did that they were not eligible to work for. So the platform has, come, has, has been able to take on um, the role of a governance actor, in my opinion, um, bridging uh, the labor market, the labor institutions that were missing uh, in earlier forms of informal work. So they are able to actually extend the state capacity in a sense, or extend the arm or the reach of the state um, by helping visibilize these workers, by helping uh, create a stable identity of who the worker is. So the state is able to operate and move around them uh, much quicker. Yeah, and and I I draw this uh, contrast a little bit with textile workers. Um, again, this is you know I I tell people this in a semi-joking way that Bangalore is a tech capital because you know it probably has as many textile workers as IT workers, and if you ask me, both use tech, it's just different signs of tech. Uh, but we see that tech workers tend to be in I mean sorry, uh, textile workers tend to be more invisibilized partly because they are largely, I think a dominant number of them are women. And um, many Bangaloreans, I think, were taken by surprise when a few years ago, textile uh, workers uh, basically came out into the streets in protest over what they thought was a change in the Provident Fund rules. Uh, and, you know, it, it died down quickly enough. But I think uh, you're right in the sense that uh, what the platforms are doing is visible for the state. It visibilizes this sector of workers for the state because uh, for me one thing that kind of uh, is become and I'm seeing this in a lot of different other sectors is that some people of course don't want would rather not be visible to the state but there is a large section of India's citizenry which is crying out to be visible to the state they sort of want the state to acknowledge we exist we do this these are our needs and in some ways, I mean, that's a great way to put it, that the platform is in some way visibilizing these uh, workers. Um, but of course, workers are also making these demands. And I see the one big change that has happened in the last five, six years, maybe, and maybe you'll have a better perspective on this, is that um, platform gig workers seem much more organized in 2023 
than they were in say 2017 also 2016 as recently as 2016 2017 2018 not just in that they're able to organize protests but there are more formal organizations right they like actually registered societies they may not be unions recognized under law but they have organizations these organizations have identifiable spokespersons who are always at the forefront of issues they're interfacing much more closely with uh, political parties and we know that they contributed heavily in the manner in which the law was passed in uh, Rajasthan of course we can discuss the law in much more detail but uh, how do you see like what how have you seen this organization taking place in the context of gig workers i think in what 2017 or early 2018 was the first case of pan indian collective action i saw when there were protests organized simultaneously in delhi bangalore and mumbai uh i remember feeling very excited about that and thinking that you know um despite all of these cities coming from such different labor histories and the the political voting power of labor being so different in all these places we were really able to see it um i think the 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 kind of organizing capacity also speaks towards that living in metropolitan cities and the difficulty and exclusionary elements of living in metropolitan india compared to a small town india right? and so we're seeing much less organizing happening at the small town level i'm sure that will kind of take place but are absolutely so difficult to live in they're so cash dependent that the moment income started to fall collective action became much easier for workers right because if you don't have money to spend in the dispensary for your child's education uh for access to certain services that you came to the big city for then what are you even doing in the big city it started to really impact the way households were thinking about what what are we doing here and so all the workers i was speaking to in bangalore at that time said we don't actually want to be here we're often just here to earn we're taking away our capacity to earn we'd rather kind of make sure that we stick on as rural citizens um and so i think those dynamics will also start to play in quite heavily when you think about the future of organizing also uh do we make gig work a non metropolitan issue or what does that kind of precarious life mean for those workers then um but i think just um thinking very specifically about the actual associations of workers or organizations involved in this uh i think it's been really interesting to see the rise of uh, sheikh salahuddin and the creation of an all india federation of uh, of unions that that work on transport workers um i remember speaking to salahuddin in 2017 where he was the president of the hyderabad or the telangana driver owner association at that time um and he was finding it very challenging to kind of even shape the the policy discourse in telangana and andhra pradesh where he had been operating for so many years um and just to see how important our vote bank workers have become has really been a singular thing that has made any impact in our world and uh, and i think even the story of the rajapagig workers board really shows that right? it was a moment of political opportunism um as rahul gandhi was on his walking uh yatra in the country um and so i i hope that uh, i mean my hope is and i think we will also see that because now the political leaders of these workers are also quite glued um, into this um that we are able to kind of that they're able to find opportunities like this uh, and they're kind of realizing how important they are in in the city world bank as well yeah and and, and uh, what uh, 
I mean, at, at least to speak of my personal experience on this, I think back in about 2020-21 sometime, like, you know, I, I was invited to sort of address, again, online, a group of gig worker uh, representatives on basically the legal framework. And even the labor code that you mentioned, only two sections, I think, speak about, and it is more of like a, we will do it at some point of time. Yes, yes, we acknowledge that there are platform gig workers who need ABCD, but maybe the uh, union government at some level will do this and the state government at some level will do this. It's a, we'll see in the future what happens. To move, uh, so uh, to kind of, in that discussion, one thing that struck me was, why am I speaking to them, right? I mean, not to say that I'm not not good about this. Uh, this, I, I felt, was that should be something that political parties should be the ones organizing the workers, that political parties should be the ones saying, these are your, either, you know, from the, if you're in the party, in the powers, power saying, look, we have passed these laws, why don't you claim these rights in this, this manner? Or if you're the party in opposition saying, look, this is what they have not done and this is what you should ask for. I was like, why am I trying to summarize these two sides from a purely legal perspective? Because at the end of the day, these are political demands. Two, moving, I, I, a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, I saw that uh, the Karnataka labor minister had invited a group of uh, platform worker associations uh, for discussions, and I think on the insurance scheme that the Karnataka government is planning to bring in. I don't have the to bring in a law yet along the lines of Rajasthan, and maybe that Rajasthan law still needs to be implemented and taken forward. But I see that this there's a heightened level of now political engagement on this front. But what I sort of wanted to uh, get your perspective also on was, why is it taken so long? Uh, why, or, or in the sense of, are we as in India ahead on this in a little sense? Are we kind of trailing other nations where the uh, platforming work is a big deal? Um, what is, if you sort of think about it in some ways, what has taken nearly a decade to come up with like something, like the beginning of a legislative or a political response? I think uh, looking at some of the earlier years of uh, organizing amongst workers, um, there were, like I said, because metropolitan India kind of um, bosses such different labor experiences on people, there were unions, or let's say driver associations that were really taking the idea of self-entrepreneurship very seriously, micro-entrepreneurship, not self-entrepreneurship, taking it very seriously, where there was a worker association in Delhi, and one of their protests was very clearly, we want the app verified by the National Informatics Corporation, we want algorithmic audits done, we want the government to protect our capital, why is it that we are not allowed to go bankrupt if a tech company or the company were able to go bankrupt? Um, and that had a very, very different sense and sensibility and what they were trying to achieve and what they saw themselves as. I think even amongst the 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 uh, amongst gig workers and platform workers, it's taken them just as much time, it's taken them five, six years to really come to a common political understanding of that is not really what's going on. Um, and we actually really are still an unorganized worker. You might not want to say it out loud or you might not think you were like that with because your parents were like that, you don't want to replicate how they were working because there's an element of intergenerational mobility also associated with platform work. But it has taken this as much time to come back to the idea of platform being informal, even amongst workers. And I, I, sent it, I said it earlier also that even for IFAT, uh, in the pandemic, the uh, PIL, the Supreme Court said, recognize us as informal workers. We are not anything beyond that. Right. And 
it is also coming that same understanding is coming from the idea of that actually what we need one mechanism to actually get us by for the next few years as we think about larger regulation is the welfare board because it is um, a unit that brings together a tripartite relationship for the informal economy, which is something India has a history of implementing and doing. And I know also the, the Welfare Board has been getting a fair amount of criticism as it has over the last few decades as being a unit that doesn't work and there's been lots of unspent money, etc., which is all true and all fair. But it to me, it comes back to the idea that you're still informal, you're still thinking about yourself as informal. And that is one thing that generationally has a call to action. Um, and I think it's really important to kind of think about how to politically look at that and whether our politicians are now be, now kind of coming back to this idea that actually the tech doesn't bring modernity. The tech doesn't bring just pure aspiration that you have to look at vulnerability and precarity from this new lens. Um, and, and I think that's just, it keeps me coming back to these words and terms even though there are words and terms that we can really easily get rid of because we've moved into like a world where uh, in technology you can reshape so many of these forces. And uh, we have time for one last question and a thought which comes up, which is, is this the future of work? Are we all, I mean, not to sound apocalyptic, but just as a thought experiment perhaps and to maybe extrapolate a little bit, is all work going to be gig work in the future? And, you know, just as a, or do we see that there is actually only certain kinds of work which can become this? And it's asked in a different context in AI, but this is, I think, a more definite application of AI in the context of jobs. Do we see all work becoming gig work? Well, uh, I think, you know, given whatever the estimates of the economy you take, uh, there is at least 70 to 90% of metropolitan India still works informally in the sense that they still do a kind of gig work. So in my work, I don't like using the term gig work because I feel like it, it, we end up talking again about the informal worker. And so, yes, we'll probably continue being informal in the sense of people are outside formal labor regulation in that sense. Uh, so I do think that that like platforms are not necessarily changing that. I think the the kind of interesting thing to look at when thinking about the what is the future of work, which is, of course, this unanswerable question that everyone's been asking for the last 10 years. And good, because that's how I built my career off of that question also. But, um, you know, we're also starting to see a casualization of public sector work in India, which uh, amongst the very few formal sector options for people who are not as literate or educated as, say, the people who are getting to the IS, has been a bastion of secure work and intergenerational mobility, right? So uh, the lower rungs of government work, army work, etc. Uh, uh, being in the army. Um, and to see a precarization of work there for me really starts to say something rather than just seeing platform work emerging in services. So I do think the digital can impact even those secure formal jobs that are, are, are not really their consumer-facing jobs. So whether it be looking at data entry operators who are not doing the work of digital governance in India and are not, say, for our fully employed tier five Tyre-Falpians in government services, um, their work and their lived experience is actually starting to force me to think that, yeah, actually maybe there will be a further casualization of work because it seems that now this precedent has been set, it can be set for far more and more sectors. 
But the fear around the future of work is something that I kind of take with a pinch of salt because the fear is for the 1% like us who have formal jobs right now. And so the fear comes from whether we're able to learn how to bear risk when we're not in formal jobs. It, the, that fear that comes from this question of future work is not the same fear that platform, like say the Uber driver has here because they know how to manage this. They are agile workers in the economy. They know how to sh- shift jobs. Their personal identity is not so deeply linked to how their workplace um, structurally might change. And so I think there's a different set of fears that we need to think about when it comes to social identity, lived experience, and social contracts for different parts um, of society. Uh, that's a great way of putting it, Aditi. And I think uh, that's a note on us to think about this issue also. Uh, that's all the time that we have. But thank you so much for taking our time to speak to us. This was a wonderful conversation. And uh, hopefully we look forward to seeing your work more and more on this issue. So thank you everyone for tuning into uh, the Ganatantra podcast on the New Books Network. Thanks also to our production assistant, Afra Asif, who has helped us. And thank you, Dr. Aditi. Hope to see you soon. Thank you so much, Alok and Sarayo, for calling me here. I feel it actually really grateful that you have read the book and that you have accessed the book. Um, both of your work in different has been instrumental to be also thinking about this. And I hope that as a community of people, we're able to kind of take the question forward. And thank you again for, for inviting me here. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much and see you all soon on our next episode.